again, for those of you who came to camp last week, uh, it was, we had a really good time. We had a lot of good time of studying as well. We, we focused over the weekend on things to come, on prophecy. On Saturday, Pastor Trevor preached on the rapture from 1 Thessalonians 4, and then I jumped ahead in Matthew to Matthew 24 to look at what Jesus prophesied about things to come. What did Jesus have to say about the future? Interestingly, Matthew 24 and 25 is the longest section of prophecy in the New Testament outside of the book of Revelation. Well, I got through all of Matthew 24 last weekend, and I was planning on going back to Matthew 22 today, where we left off a couple weeks ago. But as the week went on, I just felt like I needed to finish where I was at. So today we're going to jump ahead to Matthew 25. Pastor Ted had said back on Palm Sunday that some people marched through Matthew and were meandering through Matthew, and we're going to continue to do that a little bit here. So this week and next week we'll look at Matthew 25, and then we'll go back to where we were. So a quick review of Matthew 24. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. He's been there teaching and having this confrontation with the Pharisees, and as they leave, the disciples point to the temple, and they're remarking about it, and Jesus looks at it and says, this will all be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. And they get up to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples naturally want to know, when is this going to happen? And they also ask him, when will you become king? In return to that, Jesus goes on to prophesy to them about the tribulation. Specifically, he spends a lot of time talking about how those who go through it can know exactly when it's going to end and when he will come back, and that the sign of him becoming king is when they will physically see him coming in the clouds, coming in glory. But he also tells them in verse 20, 36, Matthew 24, 36, that only God the Father knows when this is going to happen. The angels don't know. Jesus himself doesn't know. At that time, at the beginning of the tribulation, Jesus will, his presence will return to earth, but he won't visibly be seen until the end of that seven years. He goes on to describe, you know, Pastor Trevor, like I said in 1 Thessalonians 4, looked at the rapture. Jesus goes on to describe things being normal. People are working, and yet all of a sudden some of them are gone, and some of them stay. He's describing the rapture and how the church will be taken, and how it will be like a thief in the night. It's going to come when you least expect it. And he ends the chapter with telling a parable of a servant who is left in charge over his master's household. That servant, there were two possibilities for that servant. The first is that he would be faithful, take good care of the other servants and of the household, and when the master gets back, he will reward that servant for doing what he was supposed to do. The second option is that he will not be faithful, and when his master comes back, he will be judged for his unfaithfulness. While still being a servant, all responsibility he had is taken away. And that parable is for the church. So here in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus prophesied about the tribulation, about the rapture, and then he gives four parables, and he goes back and forth. The first parable was for the church. He's then going to begin chapter 25 with a parable for those disciples that will be going through the tribulation, the Jewish disciples in the tribulation that he spoke so much about in the beginning of chapter 24. 
So look with me at Matthew 25, verses 1 through 5. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. This passage will forever remind me of my grandfather. I worked for my grandfather for 10 years, and during that time, there was a lot of times when I would drive him someplace, and every time he'd get in the car, he'd sit down, and he'd lean over on me to look at the gas gauge. And if it was below half a tank, and heaven forbid it was a quarter tank, he'd say in this whiny voice that he used when he'd get annoyed, haven't you ever heard of the story of the ten virgins? (laughs) There were five foolish ones. You must be one of them. He was a a funny man. His other favorite was if he saw the tank was low. Well, you must be running this car on Christian science. But we're here in this story. We have ten bridesmaids that are waiting for a party to start. The first clue that this is something that will take place in the future, that this is for the tribulation disciples and not for us, is how it begins. Jesus says, then. He's pointing towards the future. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable. In this story, we have ten bridesmaids that are waiting for a party to start. As we look at that, those ten bridesmaids are the Jewish disciples. And as we look at the history of the context Jesus is talking in here, that his disciples would have known that parties were always held in the evening then. Wedding parties, any kind of party, because people worked during the day. This was not a culture that had holidays like Labor Day, like we do, or Saturdays off. For Jewish people, you couldn't celebrate on Sunday, the only day they didn't work. Interestingly enough, in the Roman culture, they looked down on the Jews as being lazy because everyone else in the world worked seven days a week. So parties were held at night, and they would go to the bride and the wedding party to the groom's father's home, and there would be a huge wedding party And part of the celebration was a torch dance that the bridesmaids would give. Those are who these ten young ladies are, the ones who will be giving the torch dance. But they would go out at night, and they'd be waiting with their torches going, but the groom doesn't come at the beginning of the evening like he should. So they all realize he's delayed, and they become drowsy, and they fall asleep. But half were wise, and half were foolish. Half have extra oil in a flask to refill their lamp, in case he was delayed, and the others do not. And again, they all fall asleep. And interestingly, looking for this, you know, when he's talking to the church, Jesus says, be alert, be awake, be sober. All these things pointing to, you don't know when Jesus is coming, be alert. But what makes these young ladies, wise or foolish, has nothing to do with their alertness because they all fall asleep. This is a parable about a Christian's experience in the tribulation. The previous parable was about never thinking in your heart that Jesus' coming is delayed. This is clearly a different situation. 
Remember, there are a group of Jewish disciples that will be living through the tribulation. Jesus is going to, or God will miraculously save 144,000 Jews who will then preach to the rest of Israel. And the tribulation is really about God bringing Israel back to himself. Jesus gave specific detailed prophecy about the events that would take place in Matthew 24, things that they would see happening. So the ten virgins represent these Jewish disciples, and again, half are wise and half are foolish. But the issue is not a situation of being alert, that you aren't surprised because they all fell asleep, and they all know that there is a delay, and that's what Jesus was showing in Matthew 24, that his presence will return to earth, but he won't be seen for another seven years. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. So a call goes out that it's, it's time to party. And they all wake up, and in the middle of the night, there's nowhere close by to get oil for their torches. And the foolish realize they're not going to have enough oil to light their torches for all the procession and the dance that they would be doing. Their oil is running out. But the wise bridesmaids have brought extra oil. They ask for help, but there's nothing they can do for them and still fulfill their own responsibility. And it was a responsibility that they had. To not fulfill this responsibility of doing their job as a bridesmaid would have been deeply insulting to the family of those who were getting married and a huge loss of prestige and honor for them to not perform this torch dance. So the foolish are not ready, and they have to go out and try to find more oil. But the wedding party started without them, and they missed it. They insulted the family, and they missed their chance to shine. They missed the big party, the joy, the fun, and the honor. They were left in the darkness outside. Remember, Jesus had said that the first three and a half years of the tribulation were the beginning of the birth pains, that it would not be the end. But in the middle of the tribulation, the Jewish believers should flee. That moment would usher in for them a tribulation they could only imagine. Again, in Matthew 24, 15, uh, Jesus describes that there will be an abomination of desolation in the temple. And that is the moment at the exact middle of the tribulation where the Jewish believers should know that it's time to get out of here. It is about to get really, really bad. So when the first half of the tribulation is time for the Jewish believers to be preparing for that second half, Jesus has told them what is to come. If you know something really bad is coming, you need to prepare for it. They will need all the resources that they can muster to survive that time. And what they would need most is faith in Jesus' words. The first half was the time to learn and know his words and to pray and prepare for the final years to come. Some would be wise, and they would prepare. Some would be foolish, and they would not be ready when that three-and-a-half-year mark comes. 
The issue during the tribulation is not that you are ready for a surprise. We need to be ready for a surprise. The issue during the tribulation is that you need to be ready for the delay. You need to be ready for that second half of the tribulation. Whoever noticed that even in this parable, there is a midnight cry to go out and meet the bridegroom, and there is great joy that the wise bridemaids get to experience. In the same way, when the abomination of desolation appears, Jewish believers must run for the Judean hills, and Jesus Christ will supernaturally protect them there, and they will be a privileged group who are able to see Jesus return in glory. And at the end of the tribulation, this privileged group, they will be remembered forever for their faithfulness. And what's going to await them is a great privilege. That banquet is a metaphor for joy and honor in the kingdom. But there's a real warning here for the foolish Jewish disciples who are not ready for the final years of the tribulation. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So these women respectfully call the bridegroom Lord, and he says, I don't know you. The word know can mean not just that I don't, I don't have any idea who you are, but it can also mean in the Greek there that I don't honor you or I don't approve of you. They had disrespected the bridegroom by not being prepared. And he cannot look, overlook what they've done. We can use the word no in the same way. I could say, I don't even know who he is anymore. It doesn't mean I've forgotten who the person is. It means that I don't approve of the lifestyle he's making. Here's a good example from Scripture of the way that this word that's translated as no can be used in the Greek. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. The word there in, for appreciate, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, the Greek word there is oida. That is the same word in our passage in Matthew that's translated no. So that word, it didn't just mean no. No makes no sense there. There are other places, though, where to know someone does make sense in the use of the word oida. But what Paul's getting at there, he continues in verse 13, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So it's appreciation. It's esteeming them highly. This bridegroom sees these bridesmaids that did not prepare. They didn't do what they should have done. They weren't ready for him to be delayed and he cannot appreciate them or approve of them or give them honor in the way he's going to give the bridesmaids that were prepared, that were prudent. They are unworthy to enter the joy and the privilege of the celebration, and no doubt they weep. 
So this is metaphorical for the joy and privilege and reward for, of Jewish believers at the end of the tribulation. Those who are not ready for the final birth pains will fail during that time. Remember Jesus said that many Jewish disciples will not persevere but fail to love and fall for deception. Many will not heed Jesus' advice. And because they're not prepared, they will die during that time. They will not make it to the end of the tribulation to see Jesus return in glory. And when they are raised at the end of the tribulation, he will not give them honor and joy that could have been theirs. Their chance is lost. They don't get to go back again. Jesus revealed that there would also be an accountability and proper rewarding of his Jewish disciples at the end of the tribulation. And there is really the overall point that Jesus is getting at through both sets of parables he's telling, both to the church and to the future Jewish disciples in the tribulation, is that none of us gets a chance to go back and do life over again. In our time here in the church, if we get sidetracked, we never know when Jesus is coming back, but as long as he tarries, we have a church, we have support, we can come back and re-pursue our discipleship of our trying to become more like our Lord. But for these Jewish disciples in the tribulation, they will have none of that. And if they don't prepare, they will not make it to the end. You know, we're still in danger today, like we talked about last week, of forgetting, of not being on alert that Jesus could come back at any moment. For every disciple of Jesus who is alert today or who properly prepares in the tribulation, there is going to be great reward, honor, and responsibility in the messianic kingdom. For those who are not on alert or not ready, there awaits loss. Like Jesus said in chapter 24 that he can be like a thief in the night who takes away the honor and the kingdom authority that could be ours. For those disciples who do not persevere in the tribulation, their loss will be like missing the honor and joy of a young woman performing the torch dance at a wedding celebration. But the positive side of all this is that there is going to be great reward for those of us today who heed Jesus' words. For us, this means we are to be on alert. The rapture could happen at any moment, or we could be called home to him at any moment. Now, in most Bibles where it breaks apart the sections, it includes verse 13 with the parable of the bridesmaids there. But I'll try and point this out. I think in context, it actually fits with the parable of the talents. Jesus starts it here in verse 13. He says, Be on alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. So, why I think this is more applicable to the parable of the talents is that all the bridesmaids fell asleep. The ones that were called wise, it, it wasn't because they stayed awake, it was because they were prepared. And Jesus was talking there about the future tense, then the kingdom. Now he's talking to the disciples now, his disciples right in front of him saying, be on alert. Do this now. And another proof of this is this verse flows into verse 14. Verse 14 says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. So you have this, be on alert. Why do you have to be on alert? Because this is like a man going on a journey. So now we'll read verses 14 through 18. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves 
and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and then he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received five talents went and traded with them, and he gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So Jesus uses the present tense, and I think the most natural reading is that this is a reference to our time. Jesus had prophesied that he was leaving earth, and we recognize that he has ascended to heaven. And this most naturally fits us, as Jesus says, the master and us as the servants. Here's an aristocratic owner of an estate, and he has entrusted large sums of money to his servants. This would be a metaphorical, again, to Jesus entrusting his disciples, like the men he was speaking to there, and us today, with resources. He's given us resources to use for his kingdom. It's like God is a capitalist, that he's invested in us, and he, in turn, expects us to be productive with what he has given to us. And like we learned in the parable of the wise or bad servant, we should make the most of our new life, our time, our spiritual gifts, our money, our education, our responsibilities. All of these things come down to it's our potential. What is our potential as a believer in Jesus Christ? What is our potential to serve him in this time he's given us on earth? We are Jesus' stewards. Notice here that Jesus gives us unique possibilities because he knows us well. And in reality, all Christians are different. You might have the advantage of growing up in a Christian home. I had the advantage of growing up in the home of a pastor who loved God's word and wanted to teach it to his children. Others come to faith in Christ late in life, and they don't have that advantage. But God knows that. Some of us have more time to serve the Lord. I've made it my life's work. Many do not, but Jesus knows that. Some of you are leaders, some of you are not. Some of you have different talents than others. Some of you have more faith than others. Some may have more opportunities to be generous because of what God has blessed them with in their wealth. Some of you may be more outgoing than others. We are all unique, and the important thing is to make the most of who we are and what we have. Notice that the two good servants, they doubled their investment. They made a 100% profit. It's interesting that the final servant gets the least, and he's the one who takes it and hides it away. In New Testament times, people would have a place in the innermost room of their house to hide their money, and if they didn't, they would go out in secret in a place only they knew, and they would bury it to keep it safe. The point is that this last servant doesn't do anything with what God has entrusted him with. Verses 19 to 21. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. I have gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. 
enter into the joy of your master. It's like he's doing bookkeeping with them. It's the idea there of the accounting. The master comes back and he wants to settle the accounts. He's given them responsibility and he wants to find out what they have done with that responsibility. The master's expectation is that his servants would have been productive with his investments. And this first servant was productive. For this, the servant gets verbal praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. I would assume all the servants could hear this. I think the idea of this, similar to the wedding banquet, that there was a party where there was great joy to be there, is that this is a banquet being held in honor of the master coming home. And this servant, he gets the blessing of the master being pleased with what he has done and telling everyone he's done a good job. There is joy for him or her to experience. In this parable, this is likely, again, a picture of the party. The master is back, and it's time to celebrate with his faithful servants. And again, this is a picture of our accountability before Jesus. Jesus is like the master who is going on a long journey, and there is time that will pass. Enough time that a servant could say, it's been a long time, like we read in the wise and foolish servant parable. But he does return. Jesus will return. At the rapture, we will be resurrected and taken to the sky above the earth where we will be evaluated. And we all want to hear, well done. And a faithful servant will be given the honor of greater opportunity for service in the messianic kingdom. So let's look at the other two servants. One was also 100% productive, even though he had been given less initially, and the other didn't do anything. Verses 22 and 23. And to the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This is very important. The servant had been given less, but there was not a that was not a negative towards the servant. The master knew his servant well. But this servant was just as productive with what he had been given. He met his potential. The potential that Jesus saw in him, he met it. So how does the reward of this servant compare to that of the first servant? It's exactly the same. This servant also hears the exact verbal praise and is given more responsibility over many things because of his faithfulness in a few things. And so for us here, the issue is not how long you've been a Christian or what your abilities or talents are. We should never compare ourselves to other Christians. Each one of us carries the personal responsibility to be fully productive for Jesus Christ. And the same reward of reigning with him is there for each one of us if we're faithful. It doesn't matter how talented you are or whether or not you've given your life to his service. It's about being productive with what you have. Verses 24 and 25. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See? 
you have what is yours. What this man is saying is an excuse and is not true. The master had been nothing but generous. He, he'd left, but he'd entrusted them with his money so that they could use it and grow it. He had had trust in them. But this servant argues that since the master is so harsh, the servant had to hide it away to protect it so that there was no loss. He says, look, I've given you back what was yours. I didn't lose any of it. These are the servant's excuse when he is evaluated. It's an interesting excuse. I mean, you think of Christians who don't do anything, who don't get involved in their church, who don't share their faith, who don't use the abilities God's given them. I've never heard any one of any person like that say their excuse was that they don't do it because they know Jesus is so harsh. We can all come up with creative excuses. And then we see the master's response in verses 26 and 27. But his master answered and said, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and that I gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. So he's exposed by the truth. He is a wicked and lazy servant. And then the master uses the servant's own words against him. If you thought I was so harsh, if you thought I was so demanding, why didn't you at least get me interest on my money? The truth is that this servant was too selfish and lazy to do anything at all with it. And for us, we need to understand that with God, the possibilities are limitless. We can assume that these other servants made huge profits on the money that they had been given because it was God doing the work. That if we just do something, God will bring the productivity. And one more big point. In our evaluation before Jesus, our own excuses and words will be used against us. Everyone who is lazy and wants to make up lies will be held accountable. We can see that in our interactions with each other. It's, it's not easy to admit that you were wrong or that you were lazy, that you didn't do what you were supposed to. And so you come up with excuses. You blame someone. Here the servant seems to be blaming Jesus for asking anything of him. And so what's the result for that unproductive servant? Verses 28 to 30. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the master does not invite the servant to enter into his joy. In the parable, again, this is likely a banquet in the evening. Instead of the servant... Instead of being invited in, the servant is thrown out where it is dark and he grieves bitterly over his loss. But again, the servant is still a servant, but he is not given the opportunity to serve more. He's not given the opportunity to enjoy the banquet. The master announces the principle that those who are productive will be given more opportunity to be in charge, but those who are not productive will be given less opportunity to be in charge. 
And so for us, the application is clear. Do something. Use all that God has given you for Jesus Christ. Be productive. Do something and God's going to bless it. And you'll be given greater opportunity and honor and joy in the Messianic kingdom. Christians who are productive for Jesus now in all the unique ways that Jesus has gifted them will be given greater opportunities to be a servant leader in the kingdom where they can serve Jesus Christ through serving others. Again, this is what Jesus has been telling his disciples back in Matthew 23. He told them that to be the greatest, you have to be a servant. Jesus would witness that throughout his entire life in ministry. That's all he did was serve other people. He came to this earth to serve people. He would wash his disciples' feet. He would be a servant all the way to the cross where he was a servant for all of mankind. And those of us who have believed in him by becoming our sacrifice. And he lived a life of service. And that's what he wants from us. But those who excuse themselves for their responsibility, and like the wicked servant there, blame their laziness on Jesus Christ for daring to ask anything of them, they will be least in the Messianic kingdom. They will be given even less opportunity to serve Christ in the kingdom to come. This is another important parable for our time, encouraging us to be ready for Jesus' coming because we can't know the time he will arrive. His coming again could be like a thief. And if we aren't ready, that opportunity to serve will be taken from us. This life is a preparation for greater responsibility in the kingdom. And as we look at this final application, I don't think this means we need to go out and be crazy and look at the life of Jesus. He served those that were around him. We all have opportunities to serve people near us, whether it's fellow believers that we can love and encourage and spur on to greater discipleship, or if it's the unsaved that we can give the best news ever to, that Jesus loves them and he died for them. Jesus had time for individuals. I think he wants us to as well. If we're going to serve others, we have to have time. Jesus made time for the religious rulers, he made time for his disciples, he made time for children. I think we should follow his example as we seek to serve him by serving others. The point here is to be consistent and productive in our time, because today could be the day he comes back, any day, any time, and we want to be ready for him. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the opportunity you've given us to serve you, that you've created this church to promote your agenda during this church age, and that you've, while you don't need us, Lord, you've chosen to use us to further what you want done. We thank you for that opportunity, and I pray that you be with us and give us faithfulness to serve you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.